Welcome to the next uh, installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview the newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I am your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say a big warm welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Gene. Hello, all. How are you out there? Doing well. Just uh, hurdled one set of holidays and hurtling toward another. Well, you know, as long as you're keeping the nose out of the alfalfa, everything's okay. So far. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so, you know, as we usually do, we discuss some of the news items that are, um, you know, been more prevalent, and uh, there's there are tons of them. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, if people have been watching, there's been a lot of uh, fallout. Well, not fallout, but I guess... Uh, a lot of talk about the Amazon Prime Air thing. Your take on it, Gene. You know, <laughs> there's even some backlash from that uh, today. I know that uh, you were contacted. I was contacted as well as, as, uh, as an analyst, if you will, to, to make comment on that. And I think it played exactly into where they wanted to be, to, to be quite honest with you. It is. Uh, it's very topical. Uh, the drone uh, situation is ramping up. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it coming. And uh, if you're not on the bandwagon, you need to get on the bandwagon. And Amazon may, you know, sell a couple of, uh, you know, small items that, uh, you know, look like drone aircraft. But to really get into the news, you need to be a user. And they jumped in with a big old splash, I think. Yeah, I, um, you know, in the one piece that I just wrote about how we fell so far behind, uh, which is getting tons of great feedback. I mean, I, and one thing about the feedback, too, I, I think uh, I'm always surprised who's reading the SUAS news. And when you get uh, start getting the emails on a story, it's, it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> um, but I think that uh, Mr. Bezos, uh, he's a genius because uh, he's probably made more money with drones than most people will dream about in their lifetime. I mean, that that story is worldwide, and it's just everybody's talking about it. So, you know, um, everybody thinking about their Christmas purchases, I'm sure. Oh, well, you know, I'll do Amazon, you know, I'm not going to get it this year by drone, but maybe, you know, in a couple of years, which I think is a little bit of a pipe dream. Hate to be the the Eeyore on that one, but uh, after reading the roadmap, you read the roadmap, right, Gene? Oh yeah, several times. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned getting, for 2015. Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen. That should be another article coming out in Blomberg. I got to interviewed yesterday about the test sites and exactly the, the guy. You know, I mean, Blomberg does financial news, and they're really trying to figure out. They can't wrap their arms around how the test sites are going to make money. Hmm. And uh, I told them, I said, well, you're not the only guy trying to figure that one out. Um, there's a lot of people trying to figure out how they're going to make money. But <clears throat> I do think that the Amazon drone has done a lot for, has done so much for the community um, in the sense that, and I mean, it kind of coincides with what I was saying at the Small Unmanned Systems Business Expo and my presentation about how if tech could take over as advocate prime for this technology, I think most of the, let's say, 
trepidations that people have or the misconceptions about this being a military technology would go away. And I and I think that uh, the um, Amazon Prime Air drone is doing that because everybody's talking about how cool it is. Nobody's really talking about the privacy. Some people are, you know, the fringe. You're still going to have the fringe people out there who are afraid of it dropping off CDs and DVDs, but by and large, most people think it's cool. And for some reason, people really trust Internet and technology companies with uh, personal data, you know, and and things about them. So I hats off to Mr. Bezos. I think he did a great job. And I did say in my interview that I thought that uh, Google and the rest of boys will be right right hot on their heels and maybe did you see that article this morning gene about uh google robots running out of, of the car of course yeah day late the dollar short on that one google your moonshot you kind of <laughs> got uh you kind of got <laughs> scooped on that one but i think it's good i i think that um you know we're 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 moving forward the other thing uh, that I wanted to talk about was that one story, the uh, how'd we fall so far behind. If uh, you haven't seen it, uh, you should go to the SUS News website and check it out. There's some graphics on there, how this thing's working, where we are, why, why we're here. I'm um, hearing from a wide cross-section of the community, and people are saying, wow, you know, this just really kind of, uh, you know, draws or let's say connects the dots the second graphic i thought may might be a little over the top with the little vulture on there but people seem to like the vulture what did you think of the vulture gene i kind of liked it myself <laughs> Hell, uh, they've gotten to the point where they don't even have to go out and kill anything it just gets fed to them so <laughs> Exactly, and that was kind of the uh, the the point of using it. But uh, good good example of where we're at, how we got here, what's going on. The other big news is uh, we have we 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 did like a soft launch of drone TV, but uh, we have a fa- officially launched uh, drone TV, and it is uh, the stories yep. on the SUS News uh, homepage. But you can go visit it and watch it on. Um, our YouTube channel, and uh, the first episode, you know, you're in that, Gene, or mention of you is in that, and uh, it's it's with uh, Maha and Gus Calderon, and it's about the Civilian Drone movie, which if you haven't seen that, you should go watch that, because it's a good movie about search and rescue, and our and our humble co-host is, um, is one of the uh, people featured in that film. So if you haven't seen that, you want to go see that. Have, have you watched the uh, inaugural episode of Drone TV, Gene? I, you know, I have. And uh, as I sat and watched it and, and y'all kind of talked about me, I, I kind of felt like a soul dove at a tent revival there, you know, because I, <laughs> I felt like I was doing something wrong, but everybody liked it, you know. So <laughs> it was it was a little uncomfortable, but uh, I thought it was uh, was well put together and, and produced, and I think it's going to be another good outlet for us to get good information out to the to the internet population and the people that we have watching uh, at SUAS News and listening with podcasts. Well, you know, it's another. It's definitely another vehicle for people to get their information. A lot of people really responded well to the civilian drone movie, and I mean, tons of tons of feedback from that. And so, I mean, you know, a lot of people like to watch video. So, video is just another format for us. Um, the production, you know, we we were going to launch the drone TV earlier, and we were doing it over Google Plus. But man, it just 
it just uh, it stunk. I, I just it was it just wasn't professional enough for a um, let's say an industry. I mean that's another thing. People kind of beat me up all the time. Oh, you're wearing a tie and you look stiff. Well. I'm trying to add professionalism to a profession, you know. We're, we are uh, trying to portray a professional um, industry. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the community kind of deserves it. So I was hoping for something with more production quality, um, something more professional. And actually the, the Calderones were very nice in um, assisting us and making that happen. So I hope everyone checks that out and enjoys it. We have some other ones coming where actually uh, where we're not – beating up on the FAA or anybody. It's uh, there's, We're going to do some educational. We have an educational one that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. We were out at the airport and kind of took some footage of what it looks like out of the cockpit of an airplane for people in this community who don't really get that we're moving into an occupied space. And so you'll kind of get the perspective of what you're looking at outside of the aircraft, and uh, it stars the Cracker Barrel, the infamous Cracker Barrel. And... Um, <laughs> I'm out there, and I'm I'm out at about uh, two seconds before impact. I go out there, and then I come in to about a second before impact, and then I come right up into the windshield of the plane, and I have it in my hand. I'm not flying it because I didn't want to buy a new windshield. But, uh, you know, the idea with that is, is you get kind of a, a, an idea of what a pilot in, in um, a manned aircraft can see. And hopefully, yep. you know, it'll act as a little bit of an edu- educational thing for people who are on the ground flying and maybe get a better understanding of, of the space that you're going into. That's, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. We also have uh, another one in the can, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring those out. And There's other stuff for the future. We need to find some advertisers for that. The production of video is not cheap. I can say that without reservation. Yep. So go over there and check that out. Anything else catch your attention this week? Well, I was like I was I was going to jump on the uh, the drone TV thing too. As as I uh, mentioned, I did see it, and uh, I think it's just a, a fantastic next step for the SUAS news. I mean, just a, a, a really taken with the production quality of it, and the, like, like say the call runs are, are professional at it, and uh, I think it's going to be a great success. I mean, that's that's been kind of at the forefront since I watched you know the the, the first issue last night. Well, you know that, and I mean, we originally came up with the idea, and it's in the story to try and do some PSAs, uh, loosely based on my TED talk. Like this is my drone, uh, more for the consumption of, let's say, the general public. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think for a lot of this, uh, the efforts, a lot of it is kind of, you know, we circle the wagons or preach to the choir or whatever. And what we really need to do is go out there and talk to the general public and say, hey, you know, this is this is what we want to do. You know, we don't, we're not really. You know, we don't want to launch missiles at you. We kind of want to, you know, find missing people or do farming or, you know, do art or whatever. Um, and yep. then I, I hope to do that in the future. So we'll, we'll see in my spare time what we can pull out of the hat. It's just, I'm sure you're, you're not busy either. <laughs> well, you know, the only thing that I'm concerned with, Patrick, is that I don't own a tie. Well, we're going to have to, so we'll have to have get to you one of those. We'll get you one of those bolo deals with the uh, with the uh, scorpion and the the, the longhorn. Maybe okay, yeah, that works. That works. We'll get you that and uh, a nice dress cowboy hat. <laughs> That'll work. 
All right, sounds good. Okay, so let's you know let's bring on our first guest. Our our first guest is Mr. Paul Voss, and he's the associate pre- he's an associate professor at Smith College. He's in, in engineering. He does a whole bunch of stuff, but uh, we kind of um, we brought him on here because he wrote an op-ed piece for IEE Spectrum. So before we go on, Paul, could you introduce yourself to the audience and a little bio of how you got involved? Uh, with the unmanned aircraft systems, let's say, topic. Uh, sure, yeah. And uh, first, uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's a very interesting work you're doing. Um, uh, my background is in um, engineering and atmospheric science. Um, I uh, uh, have um, been involved uh, in graduate school with uh, the um, ER2 program and then later with uh, very small uh, balloons that we've developed, so um, uh, altitude controlled things about the size of a, half the size of a weather balloon and uh, mail these all around the world right now. I do science by FedEx um, where uh, I'm actually mailing some out to Antarctica uh, in, a, in a week or so and uh, we're doing a big campaign in the Amazon. and. Um, these uh, are not uh, unmanned aircraft, uh, but a lot of electronics and communications and stuff are similar. So it's a really interesting world. Um, so I've been involved in that for a while. As, um, as far as I know, they're the world's smallest controllable object that you can send and get data from. And w- we don't do any photography and things like that, so there's not these privacy concerns. We're just taking meteorological data, essentially. But um, it's fascinating stuff. And um, I have uh, gotten really interested in the airspace issue. I've been uh, in, involved with uh, model aircraft all my life. Um, I teach fluid mechanics. I, I think flight is beautiful and intrinsically and, and useful in the, for the same reasons that you do, that this technology has a lot of promise. And um, I've, been, I've gotten very interested in the policy side of things because of the uh, you know, severe restrictions on academic freedom and academic research with anything in the air. Um, you know, literally down to the size of a paper airplane is, is technically not legal to fly outdoors if we're using it for teaching and research. And, um, you know, this is a really troubling development. I'm you know, used to, you know, I think like all of us, I grew up in a country that, you know, was sort of more free. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a different world we're living in here. So, uh, so I've looked at, spent a lot of time uh, for the last two years uh, reading Supreme Court cases and looking at the history of our airspace. And uh, it's a fascinating story that I feel like everyone needs to know who's even remotely involved in this uh, UAS policy debate. We, we need to know the foundation and then build on that. Uh, and, and I think I feel like we've been going ahead uh, without any reference to where we've come from. So uh, there's, the, there's the brief bio. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you hit on a lot of topics there that, that make sense. Now, the, the weather balloon thing, let's start there because that was kind of early on. Um, how long have you been doing that? Uh, since about 2004 um, was our, our first flight, and uh, d- developed a, a very uh, uh, simple and highly efficient means of altitude control is sort of the foundation of that. Um, we got a patent on that, and have since um, been building on that technology. Uh, to the to the uh, most of my work right now is electronics and programming. It's fascinating. I've had to learn, uh, all, you know, how to make uh, printed circuit boards and everything. To so we're just you know, pounding the weight down to, to get these things so that they're small and safe enough uh, uh, that we can continue to, to uh, operate in the airspace. And, and uh, honestly, I'm super cautious about this. We uh, tend to do our flights in extremely remote regions, and um, it, that's really where my research is going. The, the Arctic, the Amazon, 
um, very little activity in the United States, and, and when we do that, it's, it's far away, as far away from uh, people as we possibly can. Um, and and so this uh, altitude control thing is. Uh, have you seen the uh, the Google effort for the Loon project? Yes, I'm well aware of that. Uh, they had a lot of interest in our technology, and um, I guess that's all I can say about it right now. Okay, because yeah, I, uh, I had talked to them, and they're you know they're down here in Silicon Valley. They were like, "Oh, this is a moonshot, man! Nobody's ever done anything yeah. like this." And I was like, "Hmm, okay." We'll leave it at that, though. My my sense is, that, you know, we uh, there's a lot of issues with international overflights uh, and um, and relatively heavy payloads. Um, you know, uh, the the balloons that I I fly are you know 160 gram payload. I mean, these are tiny, tiny things. And when you talk about putting that much weight and the number of them that they're talking, uh, putting over you know populated areas and stuff, I, I think it really could lead to changes in the airspace law for balloons. So. Um, the, the, the caution lights are, are correct, and, uh, and they, they need to proceed with caution. It's, um, you know, these, these heavy things, uh, it doesn't take much to take out a windshield of an aircraft going 500 miles an hour, and, and I think, um, you know, I have a lot of concern with how high schools and other folks are um, sending balloons up willy-nilly with teddy bears attached to them and cameras, and um, I think that's an area where the FAA has to be um, more cautious than they're being right now. Oh, look at this guy. He's he's begging for regulation over here. No, I'm just saying <laughs> I, I don't want to see an incident. I, and I honestly, you know, it's a big – here's an interesting thing to touch on real quick. The, the, it's a big sky, and, the, the, uh, you know, there's 70,000 weather balloons launched every year in the United States, 600,000 worldwide, and um, and those are going up in, in the air traffic lanes uh, – um, and there hasn't been a, a collision yet. Um, there will be sometime. I think the odds just stack up. But uh, the benefit has been so extraordinary for our weather forecasting and everything else. And, and the, the balloons were obviously here first, um, so there's, there's, there's those legal issues. But, um, y you know, it's a big sky. And uh, I think this has some uh, relevance to the uh, FAA debate on UAS in terms of especially the low-altitude flights below 400 feet. Um, you know, when you see the FAA's map, and I don't want to pick on the FAA, they have a tremendous job ahead of them. They are pressured from all different angles, but there's a figure that keeps coming up that shows the, the U.S. airspace. We're all familiar with this, that, you know, it's basically lit up bright with aircraft and showing how busy the airspace is. And uh, I think we all uh, need to recognize that on those graphics like that, the aircraft are 500 million times, I mean, 500,000 times, half a million times increased in their size. So they're distorted to you know, be blown up, um, not necessarily intentionally, but it gives the wrong impression. And then they're all compressed into you know, one layer as if all the aircraft were flying at the same altitude. So it's an enormously deceptive graphic in terms of what the real situation is. And you know, any, any one of us in most areas where we live can walk outdoors and, and look up in the sky and, and maybe count one aircraft. Uh, uh, in the whole sky, uh, unless you live in, in New York City or something. But um, so, so I think we have to be realistic about you know the real risks of you know a farmer flying something at 100 feet above his land. Um, you know, it's, it's, we get, we, a dose yeah. of realism is needed. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot easier. You know, I've I've found in my experience, it's just a lot easier to go no. You know, uh, no. 
and, and that's just easier. Now, the one other thing you did talk, you know, we did talk about, uh, or you did touch on with the farmer, you know, and oh, you know, they, these farmers now can fly RC over their fields. To me, nothing new. Um, what I, I do think, think, as I view it, sorry. I'm, no, go ahead. I, it's a small step in the right direction. I think that there was a, just so your audience knows, there was an announcement, um, uh, I think it was about a week ago, it came out in um, uh, Oklahoma Channel 9 News of all places, but they claim to have an exclusive statement from the FAA that says farmers can use, um, operate unmanned aircraft over their own property for personal use. Um, and and it, it was, that was remarkable. Uh, as you'll see, I think we, we need to get into the airspace uh, issue, but the, I see that as remarkable because it acknowledges that landowners have some um, claim to the airspace in, in, in relation to use and enjoyment of the land. Um, uh, the, you know, the word landowner is in there. The, the, uh, you can imagine farmers aren't just flying this for recreation. I think the FAA knows that. And um, I think it's a step in the right direction. It's, um, it's a small step, but it's a step. Well, I see it as a bigger thing, really, because <clears throat> farmers have always been able to fly RC over their fields. But I see it as, I mean, I, I see it working for universities, too. You know, out here at, uh, in, you know, where I'm close to UC Davis, they own a lot of land and have uh, farming experiments going on, whatever else. They should be able to fly. We do, too. RC. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and it, it's a big deal, actually, I think. this. It is, and I think what it should, it should give... A, a, let's say a wider, you know, it's not just, it can't just be farmers, you know, that's how I see it. It shouldn't just be farmers. I mean, if you can, for your own use, it's almost like when they say business use of GA aircraft, I kind of see it the same way. If you're not actually, you know, commercially making money with it, then is it really a commercial operation and do you need a commercial pilot's license? Um, so I would, if I was a universities, I'd be pressing on that. Hey, we're the same, this is the same model as the farmer right here. And, we, we already uh, are, and a number of the universities are. I, I, it's, um, it's, and it, even before this, I think there's a movement to, you know, sort of reassert our ability to use our, you know, campus airspace. You know, you can, if you can't use the, the air an inch above the ground, it's really a very serious infringement on academic freedom and teaching, especially in engineering and science. So, um, so anyway, well, there's, a there's a, quite a bit of movement in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a hindrance for, well, you know, science. Go ahead. Yeah. It also uh, but, but, I mean, if you look at it, even the FAA said that uh, businesses that manufacture unmanned aircraft have the ability to go out and test fly and do R&D, yeah. and that's not considered commercial because it's yeah. not a direct sale or I don't know what their, their, their logic is behind that, but, I mean, even commercially, there is some uh, outlet there, and there's no reason why academia should get the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to realize that these. Uh, one of the things I like, uh, you know, like to remind people of is that these model aircraft are are nothing new. Um, since the 1930s, there have been radio-controlled aircraft that are every bit as, are far more menacing than what we see today in terms of you know gas motors and more power and heavier and um, some of the, uh, you know little styrofoam things today that are, have very reliable communications and little electric motors and things are. Uh, you know, this technology has been around for a long time, and um, you know whether you call it a model aircraft or an unmanned aircraft, and the similarities are, you know, as, as the FAA is well acknowledged, they're really hard to distinguish. They're essentially the same technology, sort of rebranded and renamed, um, with you know some more sensors and things like that on it. But uh, fundamentally, it's it's not really that different. And um, uh, I guess. Um, 
you know, so so this technology has been used safely um, in the United States for many many decades, and with very very few incidents. So, um, you know, I think moving this in the direction that the FAA appears to be is a is a really smart move in the right direction. It leave it relieves some of the pressure to micromanage some of this really little stuff that they can then focus on the really serious issues up um, above 400 feet and where stuff is. Um, you know, a serious issue with a collision with an aircraft or other things that uh, they need the resources up there. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you said that because, I mean, we've been going for an exemption for years for like under four pound aircraft, um, you know, certain parameters, frangible, all the rest of that. And if, if really, if people, if there was that was available, people would gravitate towards that if it was less restricted. Um, Let's say you didn't need a commercial pilot's license and stuff like that. But, you know, it goes back to uh, I, don't, I don't really think that they, when the FAA stepped on this landmine, I don't think they really realized what they were getting into. Uh, and I still don't you mean think with that the farmers? No, no, just with the farmers, but this whole technology in general. Uh, the, and that, the that's something I'd love to comment on. If you don't mind, I'd like to Go just ahead. give a very brief uh, overview of sort of where we came from, because that's that's the most interesting story to me. So... Um, uh, if, if you take a look back in history, not very far, in fact, you know, when my grandfather was alive, uh, you know, the, the property owners very uh, clearly in the common law owned the airspace above their property, and it went ad coelum, meaning to the heavens. You owned, you owned the box. Um, and that meant that, you know, people couldn't uh, shoot a bullet across your property without, in, you know, sort of trespass, and, uh, and nor could they... Um, uh, run telephone wires, you know, over your property, even if it doesn't touch the land. And so this ad coelum doctrine is, is written into our landscape. Every time you see telephone wires going down the, the main streets and, and not cutting diagonally over people's lots, uh, it, it's a signature of this, you know, this ownership of the airspace. And um, it became, uh, with the, you know, Kitty Hawk flight, the Wright brothers in 1903, it opened up a huge can of worms of, uh, you know, were these aircraft trespassing or were they, um, you know, merely using the public airspace? And it, it took a long time to resolve that issue in the United States. Uh, Europe was much quicker. They were uh, free to just sort of declare all the airspace public. But in the United States, we have the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which uh, created a really legal thorny mess. Uh, and it took until 1926 to... Uh, so you think, you know, almost a quarter of a century to come up with, you know, the federal laws, and this was the Air Commerce Act of 1926. Um, interesting side note is that was signed by and, uh, and sort of facilitated by Calvin Coolidge, who was the former mayor of my town, uh, city councilor here, um, and then be went on to become the president, and he um, developed the, this deft um, compromise between landowners who previously owned all the airspace and the, the aviation industry, um, which set the, what we have today. It's basically the law, the Air Commerce Act basically reads exactly like the statutes today. And it says, uh, you know, above the minimum safe altitudes of flight is a public highway, essentially, and uh, below that is, you know, essentially the remnant of um, ad coelum of what landowners owned. And um, this view has been reinforced again and again by the courts. Um, you know, everyone should, who's interested in this should read U.S. v. Cosby, which is the seminal 1946 case. But, the, you know, the language in there is really strong and that the landowner owns the, the airspace near the ground and, and uh, has, ex, you know, quote, exclusive control over that airspace. And um, 
and, and, and above that is the, the public highway. Um, and uh, and the, the Supreme Court in 1946 went so far as to say that, you know, if, if that agency, uh, meaning today's FAA, uh, then it was the Department of Commerce, but if the agency had said 83 feet was the minimum safe altitude, the, the Supreme Court said we would have a problem with the regulations. Um, and, and so this is then uh, reiterated a number of times. Uh, Florida versus Riley is another huge one that everyone should read. Um, a lot of concern about uh, public right of transit extending below 400 feet uh, from, from all the justices. And, and even uh, saying 400 feet was too low, uh, three of the dissenting justices. So um, this theme from Air Commerce Act of 1926 through U.S.V. Cosby, through Riley, all the way through 2005 through a Pegasus Air uh, case, um, really acknowledges that there's, there's some ownership of the lowermost airspace. And so when we have a policy statement as came out in 2007 that you know, landowners can't fly a paper airplane in their backyard unless they get FAA approval, you know, if it's for commercial or, or, recreational, or, or non-recreational use, um, that really goes counter to centuries of, of legal precedent. And I'm not a lawyer, but I've read plenty about this to know that there's some big issues here. And um, as I see, this is actually our salvation in this country and that we, and, and this is a way that I see the FAA moving with the you know, acknowledgement that farmers have the right to use the, the airspace, uh, even if it's a tacit acknowledgement. Um, there is the potential for you know a, a vast uh, pressure release in terms of allowing some of this technology to be used at very small stuff at low altitudes, line of sight over private property where you're not snooping on your neighbors in agriculture and other things, locally controlled, um, meaning that you know the towns and cities can say what's appropriate in that region. Um, and and to have a, a you know a vastly more dynamic and interesting, market than the stagnation we've seen the last uh, five or six years. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm really hopeful that we're moving in that direction uh, glacially where people are starting to realize the United States is unique and our Constitution affords, um, you know, it's, it's going to mean there's a, a unique solution to this problem in the United States that's not the same as the, some of the rest of the world where, you know, everything is public airspace down to the grass. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's just a fascinating story, and it, 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 it deserves a lot of our attention because um, there's so many benefits, I think. I'll just say, say one. I mean, for the industry, um, you know, if you, if you have this, essentially the word is a segregated airspace where below 400 feet is, you know, landowners have some control over, and above that is clearly a public highway. And, and that, you know, that's what we've had. That's nothing new. That's what we've had since, you know, 1926. Um, and uh, if we have this segregated airspace, we have a lot of markets that can take off like the farmers, uh, low altitude, very small stuff over their own land that, that are not sort of, uh, menacing aircraft. And then uh, above 400 feet, we can have all the dreams and of the, you know, the bigger folks who want to have, you know, very highly regulated, um, long distance stuff. Uh, at those higher altitudes. So it's, I view it as kind of an optimistic scenario where uh, we might have two markets instead of one and, uh, and vastly more activity uh, in the United States than we've had the last decade.
I would agree with that. I think they really they're going to have to do something where there's uh, a lightly regulated group, there, or there's just no way they're going to be able to handle the traffic. Or, I mean, there's a couple of different uh, scenarios where they could. But anyway, it's all very interesting. Um, you know, do you have a website where uh, you talk about some of the? Projects you know, that you're I don't. On? We we did at a, a point, but I you know I really want to. Um, the tone has got to be just right because I, I have tremendous respect for the folks at the FAA and what they're trying to do and all the pressures that they're um, under. And so, you know, putting uh, putting stuff out that's critical of that, I, I just, you know, I, I think um, I'm struggling with how to say it in the right tone. And um, I think folks at the FAA, hopefully, they're listening to this and, and really thinking about some of these issues because. Um, it's. Uh, I, th- I think there's a chance of having, um, you know, some very safe activities uh, happening down near the ground, um, and and um, and save the regulatory effort for the for the much more serious stuff happening ab- above 400 feet and, uh, you know, of, over other people's property. Um, you know, the the Amazon thing, for example, <laughs> uh, it's a crazy idea, right? And and uh, and a lot of people I heard from. Uh, you know, thought, hey, this is really cool, but I'm not sure I want that thing flying 50 feet over my backyard to deliver my neighbor's package. That's just not the world I want to live in. And um, so I, I think having some acknowledgement that something like Amazon would would need to be above 400 feet, and it, you'd need to check the box. If it was going to come down in your property, you need to sign on. That that's what you are agreeing to. But that stuff uh, I don't think should be flying willy-nilly uh, everywhere. Um, without landowners having some control near the ground, um, as we always have. All right. And, uh, well, so. some some interesting insight there. Now we're going to br- yeah. move into segment two here and bring on our next guest, and you can hang out if you like, if you got time. But uh, sure. we're going to we're going to bring uh, Terry and Belinda Kilby, authors of the Drone Art Baltimore Photography Book and owners of Elevated De- Elevated Element. Um, are you guys still there, or did you drop off? Yeah. We're, We're here. here. We're here. Hello. <laughs> Waiting so patiently. Um, you know, maybe you guys could give us a – I mean, we met at DARK, um, the, the Drone and Robotics Conference in New York City, and uh, you guys uh, gave me a copy of your book, your beautiful photography book. But uh, maybe you guys could do a little bio about yourselves, how you got into unmanned aircraft and aerial photography, and start with Terry, and then we'll move on to Belinda. First of all, thanks for having us on, Patrick. I uh, really appreciate sure. it. Uh, we uh, recently got married. Belinda, well, I guess to go back even further, Belinda and I have known each other for many, many years. We grew up together, went to school together and everything. And uh, just about five years ago, we actually, after I relocated back to Baltimore, got romantically involved and were married a couple of years ago. And during that process of, of kind of combining lives, we started to you know, like most other people out there who get married, started to combine some of our pastimes and, and passions and backgrounds. And uh, I grew up, uh, you know, as a RC enthusiast. I built, uh, you know, countless RC cars, planes, boats, you name it. Somehow or another, I flew it and crashed it or what have you. And um, I'm also a software engineer during the day, uh, specializing in mobile technology, uh, primarily iPhone and Android uh, devices. So, uh, you know, when we started to combine some of our past, uh, you know, interests, uh, the RC thing came up, and, uh, you know, Belinda has always been a visual artist, uh, 
And uh, I guess uh, drone photographers are what you come up with when you combine a tech person and a, uh, a visual arts person. Um, I'll let Belinda add on to that some. Yeah, um, I witnessed Terry getting involved with um, building some of the RC, you know, just being a tinkerer with RC stuff, and then um, he put a little tiny camera, uh, the gumstick camera is what they call it, it's just a few grams on one of the store-bought RC helicopters, and it was just awful footage, of course, but... Um, having an art background, I saw the connection with some other important art movements from the past, like um, Japanese prints and Impressionism. They both have, among others, they both have aerial type of perspective going on, bird's eye view. And so I saw that there was a lot of potential to create something really exciting and fresh and unique with, um, while also embracing new technology. So it's just like really the novelty of having combined traditional fine art and new technology. Oh, that's I'm interesting. A teacher. I, <laughs> I should oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, before we go too far on this, usually I ask people if they have a website after, but I think in this case, just in case uh, people are listening or as they're listening to this, they could pull up the website. You guys, uh, could you give us their, the website address? Sure. It's uh, elevatedelement.com. Okay, uh, and we, uh, we have photos and you know copies of the book and everything up there. So yeah, so people could kind of get an idea of the work that you're doing as we're talking about this. Uh, um, so yeah, you know we 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 met at dark. You gave me a copy of the book. I uh, I looked through this. I don't have it on my coffee table because I don't have a coffee table, <laughs> but I have it on my my desk, <laughs> which is just you know kind Even of better. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And it's it's not really a coffee table, but it's pretty messy. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I did, you know, some of the pictures uh, stuck out to me. And, uh, you know, some people don't have the book. But uh, on page uh, 32 and 33, you've got uh, Brewer's Hill here. And um, I, I really kind of liked that photograph. I, I kind of liked the, the cityscape and that one and then the signage with the, uh, the mm. guy with the, uh, I guess that was a, what kind of beer... What brand of beer that was, was that? Nas National Bohemian Beer, which was its kind of the unofficial logo of Baltimore, if you will. Uh, many, many moons ago, uh, the National Bohemian Brewery was located here in Baltimore. Uh, I believe sometime in the 60s, early 70s, possibly, they relocated. They, they were bought up. Uh, you know, as many, many brewers uh, have happened, they, they were bought out by a larger company and I think they're actually, it was actually brewed out in the Midwest somewhere for a long time, but uh, it's, it's kind of an uh, you know, unofficial icon of Baltimore. Everywhere you go, you see Mr. Bo everywhere kind of smiling. He's even been uh, adopted into some of the logos of local restaurants and breweries and things like that here in the area. So. Yeah, I think it, it's well, not kind only of a... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying it adds an interesting uh, perspective to the cityscape. Absolutely. Right. And one... One thing to point out about that shot is that, that that was really considered just a test shot at first. It was done with an early edition GoPro camera, which wasn't, you know, the highest resolution, and it kind of came out with a little bit of a dirty, gritty feel to it. And mm -hmm. then after speaking with some people about it, that's 
kind of the image that Baltimore puts out to a lot of people. Um, and everybody seemed to expect that, that image at that point. And we decided to not reshoot it in the interest of keeping that quality to the photograph. Uh, you know, everybody just kind of seemed to, to prefer it that way. So we left it. Well, and I could see uh, some of the other subjects of the photographs or the subjects in the book in that photo. So it's pretty interesting, and I'm looking at it right now. You can hear the hear the pages. <laughs> it's a little bit of yeah, more doing well, theater of the mind. Go ahead. I think that's something that really appealed about that particular photo, and the quality that sticks out for me and and some of my favorites is anything that really lends itself with uh, like a mysterious kind of quality or a surreal kind of feel to it where um, you can kind of, you know, let your imagination take flight, you know, along with, you know, what you see there in the, in the subject. So, um, right. yeah, so, yeah, that's just the whole feel and the tone. And that's something else that we've also learned is that, you know, no matter what camera you use, you can really play into the qualities that 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 equipment will produce for you. So even right. though we have evolved our fleet and we have better equipment and we've been learning as we go and we're capable of doing better quality, quote-unquote, type of images, we still are able to appreciate some of that that, you know, feel that you get with some of the, um, smaller type of models, the GoPros and the, the lighter kind of cameras as well. So, right. so you now, really get one, good stuff, even if you're an entry level. Exactly. And I think uh, one of the things that I've always liked about this low-altitude aerial photography is it's kind of something that your mind can picture uh, your head being there. And I think that mm. that also really kind of comes through in the photograph on page 41, Water Taxi. And to me, uh, I look at the photo, and it's really not so much about the water taxi as it is the, the flag. You know, you got the stars and bars and how it's furled in the wind, and then the contrast of the field. Uh, it really speaks to me. You know, it kind of evokes a uh, kind of a patriotic emotion in the flag. And, you know, any good art is born of emotion. So uh, I, I could kind of see that here. And, um, you know, again, it, the, the title's maybe not the same, but... Different photos speak to different people in different ways. And uh, I think throughout the book, that notion that I just talked about, about the low-altitude aerial photography and being able to kind of conceptualize that in your mind really works and is, let's say, present throughout the book. I was impressed with that. Yeah, yes, little-known fact about that particular shot is it was actually captured on Flag Day, too. So uh, totally like unintentional, that. just... Kind of went out on Flag Day, and uh, when we got home that that evening, we looked, and ninety percent of the shots we had contained a flag somewhere. So that was <laughs> well, uh, that's good. Kind of a nice for, thing. fortuitous, but it's uh, it is you know it's a nice um, a nice thing. Um, now, so I you know you had to, I know that you know from my own experience of doing uh, aerial photography that you can capture a lot of photos. Um, and sometimes it's hard weeding through there to pick out your favorites. But uh, maybe you guys could tell us what the what either one of you is your your favorites or your favorite I'll shot. I'd start with this one. 
Go ahead, go ahead Belinda. Oh, okay. Um, wow. Uh, the more that we spend time with them, they they all are are loved and and you know important to us. But um, gosh, uh, I guess uh, coming from an educational kind of pa- background for myself, um, being an art teacher in Baltimore City for the last ten years, um, I really enjoy looking at the Park School photo. And if you have the book there. It, whoever does, then it's on page 58, but um, there were 1,100 students that spelled out the word park, and the math department of that school, they took the time to, the students, to grid out and know exactly how much area would be needed in each block letter to accommodate, and they had the younger kids in the front row, the older kids in the back row, so back row, so knowing that we're going to be at an angle, not directly over the people, but off to the side, then it really enabled us to capture something really special and perspective-wise still, you know, look right. So there was a lot of planning that went into that shot for literally five minutes of execution. So pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool to have that that participatory story. And then, uh, Terry... Terry, for you, what, what did uh, which which photos uh, was your favorite? You know, I think you and I have very similar tastes. Uh, one of my favorites is absolutely the Brewers Hill shot, uh, Mr. Bo. Um, you know, again, he's just such an icon, such a you know big part of the the culture that is Baltimore. And to see him looking out over the city from that perspective, um, it's something that you simply can't see any other way. Because uh, I'm sure you're not familiar with the area, but the, there are no buildings that you could potentially get that shot from around there. Uh, that is by far the tallest building in that neighborhood, and there's nothing anywhere close to that that you could even zoom in with a large telephoto or anything along those lines. So that's definitely one of my favorites. Well, it was nice work. And I, uh, you guys, uh, just briefly, it was yeah. talk maybe of working on another book? Yeah, we're still uh, trying to weed through possible subjects right now. Um, you know, we've talked about possibly doing other cities in, in the U.S. Um, we've also talked about possibly just leaving the country, maybe uh, doing a book of ancient ruins throughout uh, South America and Mexico, things of that nature, um, you know, mine ruins, things of that. Uh, but it, it's, there are still quite a few things on the table right now, so we haven't, haven't really officially made up our minds yet. But you'll be one of the first people yeah. to know when we start. All right, it's I appreciate that. Well, go ahead. Give us your goal. Yeah, we're, no, I was just going to say it's definitely a goal, but we're focusing on promoting and getting the word out about our first book, Drone Art Baltimore. <laughs> and and that uh, Terry is real active with um, designing and, and getting into some manufacturing of his, his latest design, which is more of a hybrid-style quadcopter where he can not only get some nice photographic stills, but also have a more agile type of flight where um, we can get into a little bit of video as well. So we're excited about that. All right. Well, that sounds good. And I appreciate you guys coming on. And also my thanks uh, uh, to Paul Voss. Thanks, Paul. If you're still here, you're still here. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on here and uh, fascinating to to hear about the area of photography. It's great stuff. That's Thank you, Paul. Work. What we're trying to do here is give everybody that uh, different perspective. Gene, you were kind of quiet. I didn't. I didn't let you even in here. I feel oh. bad about that. Well, 
No, I, I'm actually I'm on the website looking at the portfolio, and and I, I think the picture that you spoke of, Patrick, is number eighteen. I'm looking at the bridge span now. You guys do some fantastic work. It's beautiful. So Thank I, you. I, if if the folks that uh, out here on the podcast want to see examples of it, I would love to see something like that in a huge print. But they need to go look at your website because you do some really nice work. Website one more time. I appreciate it. Uh, it's elevatedelement.com, and I'd also like to point out that the book Drone Art Baltimore is available on Amazon right now. Hey, now that would be, you know, if you could get your drone art book delivered by drone. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Yeah, not that Amazon needs any more uh, plugs at this point, but. <laughs> well, the drone art book does. So, you know, hopefully maybe yes, we, yes. Could, we could piggyback <laughs> on that. All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Okay. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.